Welcome to the Aegeas podcast series, Studio 2030, in which we bring you big questions, big ideas, and big debates about the future and how we can all navigate our way towards success. We discuss the trends that may change the way we think about the world and influence our views on what's most important. So there's a lot to talk about. and welcome to the third episode of Studio 2030. I'm your host, Janka, and there she is, my co-host, Viola. Hi, Viola. You are strategy manager at the insurance group GS, but also one of the driving forces behind GS internal think tank, Think 2030, aren't Indeed. you? Indeed. Yeah, that's correct. Now, Viola, in this third episode, we'll discuss the importance of partnerships. In your opinion, why should we address this topic? Well, partnerships are an important part of the DNA of AGS. And also looking forward to the future, we don't think they will become any less important than they are today. And furthermore, we also believe that any organization could benefit from setting up partnerships on their own to create more value. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about partnerships and we'll do this with two guests. Our first guest is Philip Koremans, Managing Director Asia at AGS. Hello, Philip, and thank you for joining us. The pleasure is all mine, Janka. <laughs> and our second guest today is Andrew Schwedel, partner at the management consulting firm Bain & Company, calling in all the way from New York, USA. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Janka. Nice to see you. Now, gentlemen, before we start our conversation about partnerships, uh, it might be a good idea to define what we are talking about. So, if I would ask you to give me the shortest definition of a partnership, what would your answer be? Andrew, I'll start with you. You know, I would say at its simplest, a partnership is really just an agreement between two parties to work together towards a shared goal. And there are many different forms, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, but that's really the heart of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, short answer. Thank you, Philip. Yeah. Probably add a qualifier to that, Andrew. I think it has to be a symbiotic uh, relationship. It should not be a, a dominant relationship, uh, but really uh, a relationship where parties engage into willingly and where they both benefit from. There should be no losers in a partnership and it should not be a power game. It should be no coercion. There should be no hostage taking and there should certainly not be parasitism. Andrew, something to add? I, I would agree with that. I guess the only thing to add is I, I would distinguish this uh, mutual shared collaborative goal from a purely transactional relationship. You know, there's many different types of uh, vendor service provider relationships with firms that uh, don't have that shared common vision at the heart of it. And to me, that's really the distinction between a vendor and a partner. Mm -hmm. And Andrew, you've been uh, investigating the topic of partnerships as part of your initiative at Bain & Company, the firm of the future. Could you tell us a bit more about this initiative and um, how do partnerships fit in the future of the firms? Sure. So the, you know, the firm of the future has really been a multi-year effort, as you noted. And so several years ago, we set out to really understand and define what success would look like in uh, what we believed was going to be a new era of business. We felt we were transitioning from what many people have called the era of shareholder primacy to one of uh, scale insurgency. And so that's really what the firm of the future is about. The winning firm uh, in this new era will be both uh, a scale player and get the benefits of being large 
and an insurgent and having the benefits of being fast and nimble. And, and so as part of that uh, research and effort, um, we've really had the view that partnerships are crucial to delivering on this vision. There's just way too much that is required to be big and fast uh, to have it all be done within the boundaries of one company. And at the same time, technology is making it easier and easier to collaborate across the walls of the company. And so uh, we're seeing many reasons why people are partnering, uh, but it's all in service of that vision of being big and fast. So partnerships are essential. Absolutely. Now, can you give us some more insights from the study you uh, can share with us? Well, I, you know, I'd say a couple of things. One is that um, you know, capability uh, and access to capability is really a, a critical factor in winning now. And no firm, as I say, can really bring under its own four walls all of the capabilities required to be successful. You know, success used to be measured by the assets you controlled or the number of people that worked for you. But if you look at some of the most highly valued companies in the world today, whether that's uh, you know Google or Facebook or others, they have very few uh, direct employees relative to some of the giants of yesterday. Uh, and they have very few uh, directly owned assets. Uh, you know, if you go all the way back to a winning firm in a previous era, take the automotive industry when it started. Uh, Ford Motor Company uh, under Henry Ford famously did everything in making a car, right down to owning farms on which they grazed sheep to produce wool uh, for the interior of the cars. And there's been this multi-decade unbundling of that and more and more working outside the walls of the firm. And that's really gone into hyperspeed, if you will, in this new era. So one is about access to those capabilities. Uh, the second is around speed and just being able to stand up and stand down uh, capability faster than, than ever before. Uh, and then the third is to be able to tap into somebody else's scale to reduce cost. Uh, you know, a great example of this uh, from your industry is what Discovery has done with their Vitality uh, wellness platform. Um, you know, Discovery is a South African insurer, but they compete globally now by licensing their Vitality platform to leading insurers in markets like the UK, uh, in Canada, in the US, in Asia. And they work with some of the largest insurance firms in the world, AIA, Manulife, John Hancock, Generali. And uh, they are able, therefore, to tap into the scale of those firms to really accelerate the deployment uh, of their own business. Mm -hmm. And there's also the transaction costs that are reduced as well. Is that another point you could add to that? Sure. You know, if you think about why firms came together in the first place, it was really to um, get a bunch of people collaborating together in, in service of the mission of the firm or delivering for customers and bringing them physically together and supporting them with common processes and infrastructure reduced the transaction cost of what it replaced, which was a system where people literally worked at home and shipped goods to, to you know, other merchants and had them sold through a network of middlemen, et cetera. And, and we've had this multi-century, really, march to industrial scale within the firm. But technology of the day, whether that's, uh, you know, electronics or railroads or now uh, pervasive computing, have made it ever cheaper to move more people, goods, information, and, and do it faster than ever before. And so this is just the latest version of that. And what you're now able to do, for example, is tap into... Uh, networks of skilled professionals without having to hire them full time. Uh, you know, we see firms doing this in law, in accounting, 
in investment banking, in management consulting. Um, take data science, which is a very hot field and everybody wants to be uh, excellent at data and analytics. Uh, there's a war for talent to hire data scientists. And uh, many firms are, are making those investments and building teams, but we also see people um, farming out work to independent data scientists and analysts, some affiliated with universities, uh, on a project-by-project -project basis. Uh, that's kind of what I mean by lowering transaction costs. You don't have to have all of those people as permanent employees in the firm anymore. Philip, you know all about partnerships as you have been working with partners in Asia for several decades now. How different is it to set up a partnership with organizations over there compared to here in Europe? You know, I, I would say, first and foremost, I believe the essentials, um, how should I say, capabilities in partnering are transcontextual and cross-cultural. But of course, when you enter uh, a different uh, culture altogether, uh, it requires a, a specific mindset, I would say. And, and it's a mindset of, of not knowing everything. You have to sharpen uh, that. Because actually in every partnership, there has to be a combination of being aware about your competences, but also being aware of your incompetences. And in a transcultural context, that is sharpened. Now, uh, more and more, by the way, we, we don't only look at the economic rationale, uh, but we focus uh, a lot more on uh, compatibility of values. And of course, when you move cross-cultural, uh, you have to be very aware that people may have different value systems. And one of the things, and this is actually quite interesting, that I did every time I moved in the country and I've worked in virtually every uh, Asian uh, country, mm -hmm. from China, India, Vietnam, uh, Laos, Cambodia, uh, wow. so all of them by now, I guess, uh, one way or the other, I always study uh, what makes people tick what drives management culture and how they communicate. And, and, and to, to, in order to, to weapon me for that, actually, I, I study their religious scriptures. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I look at uh, historic events that have shaped uh, mentality and the culture of that country. Mm -hmm. And the, the nice thing is, uh, when you invest the time and effort into really understanding what are the values of a potential partner, mm -hmm. it makes you very credible. And of course, it does not always avoid uh, getting lost in translation from time to time, but it makes you very credible and uh, it augments your communication mm -hmm. dramatically. And I can tell you, uh, for instance, in, in, in over the last year when I became the managing director of Asia, I've not been able to visit the region at all. So every day I uh, travel time zones and countries and I meet partners. Having taken the effort to really understand what makes them tick, it also augments your communication on the non-verbal way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we, we manage quite well, uh, despite the fact that I still believe that a real partnership from time to time requires a physical handshake. <laughs> <laughs> I think by now we all agree with you. And I see you really enjoying telling us about your secret, how to, how to um, not trying to get lost in translation by getting to know their culture and their uh, uh, what makes them tick so beautiful to listen to. But in fact, if I may add, uh, that is not only related to uh, Asia. It's also about company cultures. 
uh, what I wanted to actually to, 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 to add to that is, is we, we look for purpose alignment. Mm -hmm more and more so uh, in an era of societal commitment of companies that becomes incredibly important. doesn't mean you have to have the same values, mm -hmm. but they have to be compatible. Otherwise, that will lead to, to trouble uh, yeah. on the road ahead. Now, Philip, what are some of the reasons why GS establishes partnerships? Well, first and foremost, I would say we... we As an insurer, we have a lot of partnerships in distribution with brokers, uh, with our agents, uh, with the banks. But our obsession uh, with uh, partnerships stems from our early days of venturing into Asia. But we were aware that in order to do that, we needed uh, a local capable guide, a credible brand and a strong institutional partner. And We, 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 we wanted to put our required uh, competencies and bank assurance actually at their service. So we had shortcomings, obviously, because we didn't know anything about Asia. That's why we, we went to look for partners. Now, there were also other reasons, eh, because some of the markets uh, you could not enter uh, as a foreigner or at least not uh, full-fledged. So there were limitations on your investment. Uh, and there were what they call foreign direct investment limits that meant that a foreign partner could only take part of a company. Or there were other situations like in, in China where only national companies could get a national license. You could enter as a foreigner, but then you were restricted to a province. And, and that is something we didn't want. Uh, so we, we deliberately choose there uh, to look for partners uh, to do that also for that reason. But then uh, something incredible happened, eh? you know, of course, the financial crisis. And you have to understand that we approach these partnerships with a value proposition like you do. Eh? When you say, I'm a great company, you know, we are a great retail bank. We're going to learn you also uh, about our best practices we have in retail banking. We were a, a big asset management company, so we also promised them uh, to, to leverage our capabilities in asset management. And by the way, yes, we will also do insurance together with you. But then, of course, in the financial crisis, our company, because we were formerly known as uh, Fortis, collapsed. And you can imagine that these partners were not all that pleased with that and had serious doubts about whether the remaining insurance group, AGIAS, would be able to deliver upon these pledges. And that made us very humble. And that made us work extremely hard to stay attractive to the partner. We institutionalized, I would say, uh, partnership reinvention mechanisms. So we started leveraging best practices from one company to the other. We took them on uh, site visits. and we, we worked extremely hard to stay attractive to the partner and to continue, I would say, sharpen our competences, uh, our core competences, which we could offer them uh, in exchange. And I would say the, the, all these things together... Uh, Uh, partnership management became uh, an acquired strength, part of our strategy, almost by necessity and deprivation. And, and it, it even goes further because at that time we also did not have access to capital markets. Mm -hmm. So if we wanted to continue our growth story, we needed to look for partners also to be able to afford Mm -hmm. and to finance uh, mm -hmm. the growth. So all these things together. AGS is, of course, hardly the only multinational company that uh, has set up interesting and successful partnerships. Andrew, you already mentioned the, the case of Ford. Um, could you also give us some other examples on more 
special types of partnerships? Sure. I mean, we, we see these all over the world in every market and in every uh, industry. So one is uh, the consumer uh, goods company, Lego. So everybody's familiar with Lego. They make the, the building blocks that uh, children all over the world and many adults all over the world love to play with. Uh, you know, Lego has been a partnership machine for many years. And a lot of this is around marketing and licensing uh, and branding and promotional partnerships. So they've partnered with movie studios such as Disney, comic books, Marvel, and uh, really used a lot of that intellectual property for new products uh, in service of their customers. They've also started licensing the Lego brand to um, people across other, many other industries, Ikea, uh, Levi's, uh, Adidas. And uh, these partnerships generate additional uh, brand traction as well as, uh, you know, short-term revenue for Lego. Uh, this is very common in um, consumer. And, and you see some interesting partnerships from people you might not think would necessarily partner together. Um, Nike and Ben and & Jerry's, for example, came out with a shoe, a basketball shoe, uh, with a Ben & Jerry's theme. Um, the, the eyeglass company, Warby Parker, actually partnered with Arby's, which is a U.S. fast food chain. So there are very uh, interesting uh, niche kind of branding efforts that we see a lot. To take a totally different industry and maybe a, a very timely and relevant example, given what we've been living through for the past two years, I'd highlight the partnership between Pfizer and BioNTech to develop uh, one of the early COVID vaccines. And this was a classic example of shared capabilities. So BioNTech was a leader in mRNA technology, uh, the heart of this new approach to vaccine development. Uh, but Pfizer brought uh, significant uh, R&D and regulatory affairs uh, capability, uh, specifically around vaccine development, manufacturing and distribution scale. And they formed a, a global partnership to develop this vaccine in record time. Um, Pfizer basically upfronted the development costs uh, with an agreement that BioNTech would, would pay that back, uh, or at least their portion of it over time. There was also an equity investment from Pfizer in BioNTech. So that's a, that's a great example, I think, of uh, mutually reinforcing capabilities in service of a shared goal. Mm -hmm. Now, Andrew, uh, partnerships aside, um, are there other ways to achieve the same goal, but in other ways, for example, um, a platform, an ecosystem? Um, and what are the pros and the cons of these kind of uh, collaborations? Well, platforms is one of those really hot topics or buzzwords uh, in the business world right now. Everybody wants to be a platform. And uh, I can understand why. Seven of the 10 most valuable companies in the world are platforms. So if you think about trillion-dollar companies or multi-hundred-billion-dollar companies, the household names, uh, largely, although not exclusively, in the U.S. and China, that's um, you know, some of the best examples of scale insurgents that, uh, that people are aspiring to across industries. And you know, platforms can be uh, terrific businesses because they enjoy network effects in the sense that the more people use the platform, the more value is created and the more valuable it becomes for each of the users. Um, the challenge with platforms is, first of all, they, they work better in, in some industries, but not others. There are different types of platforms. You know, we basically see four types of platforms. Uh, you can think about development platforms where you're creating a set of standards and tools for others to build applications on top of. So a good example would be Apple with iOS. And think about all the app 
producers and developers that use iOS to get their products out. You can think about exchange platforms or transactional platforms, and this would be things like Amazon's Marketplace or Shopify uh, to support the development of small merchants online, or somebody like Airbnb in a vertical like hospitality. There are content and information platforms like Google or Facebook. Uh, and then there are, there are really kind of standards for industries, which I think of as a platform as well, because they enable the development of a whole industry. So think of something like 5G in telecoms or Ethereum around crypto. So you see all these different types of platforms. The challenge is that you need enormous scale and uh, customer relationships and technology and you know many years of patient capital to invest to build a successful platform. These tend to be winner take most. And so um, I think companies need to be realistic about when they're in a position to build the platform versus when they may need to partner with somebody else's platform. Yeah, Philip, and is Gias looking into these options? Yes, uh, I would say in, in all of them, except maybe uh, platforms uh, on that level. But uh, l let me take the other buzzword you mentioned, Andrew, is uh, ecosystems. Huh? And, and also there, we, we are actively looking at it. The, the, the challenge there is really, does it make sense from a customer perspective? Because uh, that is the first question you have to ask. Uh, what you're trying to build, is it really creating value and convenience uh, from a broad customer base? But I, I have one very good example where it, it works, and it's around the health and care industries. Huh? Of course, we st and, and the best case we have in, in our portfolio is in Portugal. And that gives a good feel of what type of things are possible. So first and foremost, we started there as a health insurer. We are, uh, if not the leading, then the second uh, uh, health insurer in, in Portugal for a long while. And the company is called Medish. But Medish really ventured on extending uh, his uh, value proposition to the client by adding all sorts of partnerships. And it started, I would say, humbly with uh, adding a, a, a network of nurses for triage. Then, then we, we partnered with a company in telemedicine. Uh, then we, we entered in a joint venture with pharmacies, not only for the delivery of drugs, but actually also because these pharmacies have, have, have good insight in what customers need. Uh, then uh, more recently, I would say, we, we discovered that there's not enough dental clinics in, in Portugal. So we started to invest in building dental clinics. Of course, we, we are not the expert, but we found a partner who really can take the medical side of operations. We built the properties, also good property investment for long-term retirement benefits. Uh, and then uh, now uh, we are, of course, integrating all that on a digital uh, convenient layer for interaction for customers. And then uh, now we, we're adding uh, health and well-being applications to it, including medical health, uh, but also mental health support. And you, you can see that this is really an ecosystem growth that now the, the insurance component, yeah, it's still somewhere there, but the whole uh, customer experience completely changed. They think about Medish not as an insurer. They think about Medish as a platform they go first to when they don't feel well. And it, it really uh, adds a scale, uh, dimensions of income, but also, and that is true, uh, dimensions of customer insight that you cannot get uh, without uh, tying these knots on the customer data. Now, they are, of course, ethical, and certainly in the medical industry, ethical aspects are extremely important. And we make sure that any insight we collect and use is for the benefit of the customer. 
mm-hmm. ultimately. In the next part, we are going to discuss which different types of partnerships there are. But before we go, Viola, what can we take away from this part? I think we have collected a quite long list of reasons, of very good reasons to establish or at least to consider establishing partnerships. On one hand, um, partnerships could help companies to do more than um, what they would be available to do on their own. Or um, in our case, uh, partnerships can even help companies to go through um, and survive difficult times. But yes, maybe now let's go ahead and find out what different types of partnerships are out there. So we just discussed why partnerships are so important, but let's take a step back now. What different kind of partnerships are there? Philip, can you give us some specific examples? I, I find it a very difficult question because there's <laughs> so many. Everything is virtually a partnership uh, lately. But I would uh, roughly from practical perspective classify them in, in, in maybe five categories uh, from our perspective. And the first one is about uh, distribution access, I would say, or product market access, which you cannot gain on your own. And uh, all the, the joint ventures we set up in, in Asia but also in Turkey and and some of them in Europe uh, fall in that category. Uh, It's actually empowering local uh, distribution by, uh, uh, let's say, uh, global expertise that you can lever. And secondly, and that is becoming more and more important, is uh, partnerships that add value, um, I would say, adjacent to your core capability, uh, service partnerships, I would call them. And I, I take a very simple example. In the context uh, of our uh, home insurance, uh, fire, flood, we set up a company which is called Omeras. And what does it do? It repairs houses. Now, once we had figured out that that is a challenge that everybody has in Belgium all the time, fighting a handyman, so we, we spin it off, actually. And it's now available as a standalone home repair service network, uh, which we call So Simply, because it makes your life so simply. And that, in that type of uh, partnerships, we have more and more uh, adjacent uh, to our businesses. Then, of course, we mentioned it already, partnering for uh, capabilities. And in our case, we're really looking into technology, digitization and data, uh, data analytics capabilities. Then the the fourth category uh, is is about the ecosystems I talked about. And the last one I would say is digital platforms, and there are too many to mention. It can go from aggregators, uh, so these online brokerage sites, or digital marketplaces, uh, travel sites, uh, you need a travel insurance, and so on. So all type of uh, affinity platforms where actually we do not uh, organize the ecosystem. But we are part, uh, a partner in someone else's uh, customer journey. And that is a form of distribution, but for us it's also a form of data insight. And I would say that these are the, the, the five main uh, partnership models we, we are actively exploring and development. That already gives us a quite clear idea. Maybe, Andrew, from your side, could you add uh, a couple of other types? Sure. Um, Let me just throw out two other kinds uh, in the spirit of filling out this list. One is uh, around financing and capital. So one of the trends or, or themes in the firm of the future that we see is a more creative approach to uh, capital and growth. You know, the historic view of a publicly traded firm as basically having debt 
holders and equity holders, and they're investing in the whole company, even though those holders have a mix of different risk appetites, different time horizons. Some of them may be looking for quarterly earnings, and every public company has to live with the pressure of delivering regular, predictable, steadily increasing quarterly earnings. Uh, and the kinds of investments that may be necessary to build new businesses, which is where growth and value ultimately comes from. So we see a whole variety of uh, what I would call flexible capital uh, approaches to, to new development. Uh, this is a common model in the film industry, for example, where specific movie projects will be bankrolled with different investors based on the project. And in pharma, by the way, as we talked about earlier with the the COVID vaccine example. Uh, but you see it in things like uh, aircraft engines. We see this in the automotive industry where there's often collaboration between incumbent uh, firms uh, and upstarts around autonomous vehicles, often with a heavy financing component. The other one I would highlight is really just an extension of this uh, gig economy type approach, but you know, essentially the idea of crowdsourcing capability. And a good example of a company that does this is Hire, the Chinese white goods manufacturer. They are a really interesting company uh, for many reasons. They've gone through several reorganizations, um, really radical restructuring of, of the company. So they've, it's a very, huge, very large company, uh, leader in many appliances. They bought GE's business in the U.S. They're international. Um, they've organized the whole company around small market-facing teams in their existing businesses and new businesses supported by internal, uh, what they call nodes of capability. Uh, the external facing teams are not obligated to use the internal capability, so they can go outside to procure services, although they usually don't. But they've also really opened up the company to external collaboration around product development, around marketing, uh, even around funding, uh, using crowdfunding vehicles to develop new products uh, in China. So I, I view that as an example of modularizing the capabilities of the company and opening them up to whoever can provide them best inside or outside the company. It's kind of at the bleeding edge of, uh, of where many organizations are going, but something I think we'll see more of in this new era. And what about the option of uh, partnering with uh, individuals in the gig economy? You know, that's that's happening as well. I mean, we, we touched on that earlier with the data science example. And, and again, there are many networks now of uh, freelancers, uh, highly skilled professionals that are available for specific projects um, in industries like finance and law and accounting, uh, even in, in investment banking. Um, you know, you see these platforms for media as well. Uh, if you think about something like Substack, uh, a, a place to amplify the voices of individual contributors. Mm -hmm. Philip, does uh, AGS have such uh, partnerships? Yeah, it's impossible to be exhaustive. But talking about the gig economy, uh, Andrew, I think lately, if I look at, at, at our corporate center, you know, where we require very specialist skills uh, for shorter term assignments and projects, I think we have about 20% of our staff, which are actually gig workers. Now, they're, they're very happy gig workers because very often they stay very long with us. Uh, but in, indeed, we see that model pop up more and more. And actually under COVID, I would say many of our experts were actually gig workers from home, working on the project and tapping into the mothership only from time to time uh, to touch base. Uh, but, but one that, that uh, you did not mention, but Intertu is, is uh, in the context, I would say, of 
shared value uh, partnerships. And this is something that we are opening up more and more in the context of our societal commitments. And, and a specific one I would like to mention there is the, the public-private uh, partnership uh, type of models. And we look at it as shared value. And uh, the best example we have today is, is uh, a project which was called Schools of Tomorrow. And uh, there, together with the Flemish government, our real estate arm uh, built, uh, financed and actually maintains uh, 200 schools in, in Flanders. And say, OK, it's a nice way to, to add to society, to put our, let's say, real estate, uh, all our capabilities at the service of, of, of our country. In this case, we do it in other countries as well. But it's, it's also a shared value. What I mean with that is we, we are a long-term retirement insurer, so we need long-term assets. So at the same time, this provides 30-year income stream for our retirement products. So that type of partnership in the context of our EAG pledges, I think we will see more and more uh, also come into play. But does the partnership need to last to be successful? Um, what about short-term partnerships? How could really short-term partnerships add value um, best? My ingoing mindset in partnerships is, is always it's forever. That may sound a little bit naive, but it's uh, an insurer mindset for one thing. Uh, you have to understand that many of our commitments to our clients are extremely long. So the reliability of a partner and the engagement you take when you talk about uh, financing someone's pension uh, or taking care for his health care needs is not something which is a short-term arrangement. And you want to make sure you can fulfill and live up to that. But it's not only that. For me, it's really a mindset that, uh, and I always compare it with a, a marriage, you know. You go in there and you, you study each other, you find you like each other, uh, but you commit actually forever. It doesn't always work, uh, but you have to work very hard uh, to, to, to make it successful through all, uh, whatever life throws at you. And it's a bit like that, my mentality on partners, to make sure I work very hard. Uh, to stay attractive to the partner. In the next part, we are going to talk more about how you can achieve the happy marriage Philip is, uh, is longing for, is working towards. But first, I want to conclude this part by looking to the future. Will we have different types of partnerships in the coming years? Viola, do you have a view on that as a GS Future Trends expert? Uh, from the research of uh, Think 2030, I can add a couple of things, but uh, many of them actually were already mentioned by Andrew. So uh, looking forward, we really expect uh, partnerships to go beyond the, the generic industries and have having to see more partnerships cross-sector, cross-country or even um, regional partnerships. And primarily all of these would be built around the customer. So either to, uh, you would form a partnership to reach new pools of customers, uh, for example, to join the platform of another company to have access to a new pool of customers or to provide a better customer experience because there's a service your, your clients would uh, wanting to have, but you don't have it, but there's a perfect service provider out there who could do that to your clients. Um, and also more in general to be able to offer personalized solutions in a secure and transparent way to your customers. And indeed, this might require cooperation of many partners, but 
as Philip also highlighted, it should all work out to find the customer needs. Otherwise, nobody will want your service, right? Um, maybe, Philip, you would want to add on that? Uh, not, not too much. I can add to that, but it's true. Eh? We, we are looking cross-sector for sure. I gave many examples. Cross-border as well. Uh, but sometimes uh, partnering opportunities come out of uh, a different angle than you would expect. In fact, the, what I was talking about, the ecosystem built uh, in Portugal around health and care, the underlying uh, technological, digital capabilities, the blueprint and the architecture, both from a business as well as a technological architecture, actually becomes a partnership opportunity. We actually exporting that model to look for partners in other countries to build the same. So sometimes uh, opportunity strikes where you don't expect it to come from. Andrew, what insights did the Firm of the Future project provide on this topic? Well, I'll, I'll just throw out uh, in the spirit of uh, rounding out how these partnerships might evolve. Um, I think we will see more intra-industry collaboration on key issues. So um, I think one arena where we will see that is on issues of concern to the industry around public policy and regulation. So we see that a lot with things like uh, climate change, with um, a broader suite of ESG policies, with trade issues, uh, export controls in the technology sector, as we go deeper into a, a post-globalized world, if you will. Um, one example where uh, I was involved in on, on this topic uh, last year was with the World Economic Forum uh, in their insurance and asset management industry group. Uh, and so this was a, a collection of firms in the industry trying to help develop a common response to uh, the challenges from COVID and how to promote more resilience uh, across their business and uh, uh, individual clients. And so um, these are all competitors, you know, in their, in their daily life. Uh, Ajayas is a member. Uh, but um, they were looking for common ground uh, to promote uh, areas of shared interest uh, to help the industry do a better job of serving customers. Uh, one way that could manifest itself is with public-private partnerships for really large uh, and catastrophic-type risks, of which a pandemic is, is certainly a good example. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you both for giving us a glimpse of the future. Viola, before we go and explore the ways of maintaining a strong partnership, what are your key takeaways from this part? I think we've seen uh, various good ways to set up partnerships between companies and it might be beneficial to look beyond what we would consider today the boundaries of our own industry. You know, the new territory might wait for us beyond the business world and beyond our industry, uh, depending on, of course, what's the goal that we would want to reach. And it is also clear that short-term partnerships uh, can serve a valuable purpose, but for long-term value creation, slightly different mindset is needed. And that, that's where we are back to the, the marriage Uh, similarity. But I find it a great one, Philip, if I may say. So let's find out um, what are the ingredients of a successful partnership. So, Philip, earlier on this podcast, you compared a good partnership with a happy marriage. 
Big question, most important question for all of us. How do you establish such a strong relationship and how can you make it work? Tell us. Yeah, of course, I'm not a marriage <laughs> counselor and if you would <laughs> ask my wife, she would certainly agree with that. Uh, but it's just a handy, uh, or should I say, a parallel to draw. And, and the first thing is a dating process. And the dating process, you really have to find a suitable partner. And a suitable partner is not about the economics and it's not about the financial, it's not about the business plan. There has to be this thing more. There has to be that joint purpose, you know. There has to be this thing you're going to together strive for and live for beyond uh, the financial dimension and you have to be compatible. And that just uh, makes it easy to remember what, <laughs> what to keep that on your checklist. The other thing I always talk about is prenuptial agreements. This is the unpleasant part. That's where we have most fights when we talk about partnerships, is all the events that could derail us in future. Don't postpone it. Don't ignore it. Uh, we, we, and I'm really talking about the hard part of uh, partnership negotiations, governance models, uh, minority protection rights for shareholders, uh, reserve metals for board, really the, the legal core including breakup clauses, not always everything is forever. And so that's why I use that parallel of uh, marriages to keep all these aspects on the radar screen. Now, once this relationship is established, how do you keep it strong and in good health? I think we all know that it's not always that easy. Philip? No, I, I continue paraphrasing. Eh? <laughs> After the honeymoon period, then the real work starts, and certainly a few years down the road, it becomes increasingly uh, important never to be complacent. Always stay working on yourself to stay attractive and I would almost say it's sexy to your partner, that you're still adding value and add spice to that relationship because otherwise it just dies out. And always keep communication lines open. And communication lines is not only about uh, talking, it's about talking uh, the dialogues both on the strategic level but also on the tactical one. It has to work and keep your finger actively on the pulse uh, of the partner satisfaction. Really survey them, ask them whether they're happy, what they're not happy about. Make that uh, explicit on the agenda and act on it. And if, if, if both parties think across all that line of uh, uh, collaboration model, if you think about it, it becomes pretty indestructible, you know. We are all humans, after all. Also the other guy or lady at the table, you know. So it's very important to have that personal engagement. Mm -hmm. Would you like something to add to that, Andrew? You know, I, I again, I agree that this communication and persistence is really important. Um, you know, to stick with the marriage analogy, uh, you know, they say that, uh, you know, pe people often go into a marriage with uninformed optimism. Uh, and at the start, you think everything will be perfect. And then you get into the reality of it. And... Uh, you may then go into informed pessimism. Um, and it's at that point where you need to remember the reasons you went into it in the first place and have the persistence and the communication to work through those tough moments. Uh, and we know that there will be those tough moments. So I think as long as both partners are really open to that dialogue, uh, to learning in both directions, it can be successful. Um, and, and I'll say that that can be a challenge sometimes for companies with really strong cultures. So companies that have that really strong insurgent mindset very often um, are, are not necessarily wired uh, to collaborate as well with firms of other cultures. But that's a critical factor to keep it healthy. And what do you consider then other big mistakes, let's say, that partners can make? What are the pitfalls? 
Well, I think, uh, you know, failing to invest uh, in, in the partnership, uh, not putting your best people on it, uh, not staying current uh, with the, the needs of the partner as those evolve. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to go into it with the mindset of uh, this is forever. Um, but the business world moves very quickly and, uh, you know, competitive positions may change, markets may change. And so you do need to be flexible uh, and adaptive as you go through it as well. We have almost come to the end of this episode. So to finish off, gentlemen, could you give us your own takeaways, your main advice for organizations that want to become a top partner or develop a strong partnerships? Andrew, could you go first, please? I'll just say three things. Uh, the first is to recognize that partnering itself has become an essential capability to winning and becoming a scale insurgent. So it's not optional, I would say, for most companies to become good at this. Uh, the second is to think boldly about what you can partner for and where. Instead of asking, what do I absolutely have to partner for? Uh, say, um, what do I absolutely have to retain? Um, and, and really just flip it around. And then the third one is to approach the partnerships with a long-term mindset. Uh, to invest, as we just said, and, and keep that fresh. Uh, but also to be uh, agile uh, and ready to adapt as circumstances change. Mm -hmm. And you, Philip? First and foremost, I think this joint obsession Andrew talked about, I talked about. It has to be there. There is this relentless, ultimate, and from my perspective, joint customer value drive, which has to be there. Uh, secondly, you have to have these compatible values. It's not only about financials. Uh, thirdly, you have to continuously improve your uh, part of the partnership. Uh, never become complacent, I said before. And finally, uh, we talked about people, Andrew. When we put people in partnerships, uh, they have to be the best. They have to be our ambassadors, but they can never be considered spies. We make them entirely and completely accountable and loyal to the success of the partnership and not to the success of one party in there. And that really changes the dynamics. And in the end, I would say, Always stay humble in your partnership engagement. Mm. Thank you very much, everybody, for providing such excellent insights and for giving concrete examples from the broad business world. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Philip. Thank you, Viola, for joining us. Thank you all. Thanks a Thank lot. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Studio 2030, brought to you by Egeas. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. For more information on Agias, please check out the company website at agias.com. 